The question I'd like to consider tonight is how we can be happy in our lives. How we can manifest our intentions of goodwill and loving kindness in our relationships, in our work situations, in our interactions with the world. Question really is how we connect our meditation practice with our lives. Now, in one verse of the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses of the Buddhist teachings, the Buddha summed up all 45 years of his teaching, summed it up in this one verse, said, Refrain from unwholesome actions, do good. Purify the mind. This is the teachings of all the Buddhas. Now the last line is interesting because he was saying that this is the same teaching of all the Buddhas in the past, all the Buddhas to come in the future, and so it really points to the timeless nature of the Dhamma. It said that what most moved the Buddha after his enlightenment to begin teaching was seeing so many beings who were seeking happiness, wanting happiness, and yet doing the very things in their lives that cause suffering. And of course, we can see this very same pattern over and over again in our own lives. There's a wonderful, wonderfully pointed teaching by Shantideva, whose great work was a guide to a bodhisattva's way of life, where he said, we're like senseless children. We shrink from suffering, but love its causes. You know, and this is our situation. When I read that, it was like... That's right on. (laughs) We don't like suffering, but we get caught up again and again in the causes of suffering. So the Buddha, out of really great compassion, took a further step in clarifying the issue in case we're not sure what actions cause suffering. In case we have confusion about this and we don't, we don't know, well, what, what are the actions that cause suffering, what don't cause suffering, even though in many respects it's very obvious, he laid it out for us. He laid out the actions which cut us off from wisdom, which cut us, cut us off from compassion, He laid out the actions that are the cause of suffering for ourselves and other people. So it's a very straightforward and powerful teaching. So what are the unwholesome actions? The Buddha very specifically said, these actions cause suffering. You know, there's just such a power in it. Very unambiguous. He highlighted 10 actions, 10 unskillful actions. 
There are three actions of the body, four actions of speech, and three of the mind. Now, most of these are quite familiar to us. So it's not that for the most part we'll be hearing anything new. But given our propensity to shrink from suffering but loving its causes, we need to hear it again and again. It's like planting and watering and nurturing the seeds of this understanding so that this wisdom is activated in times, in moments of intention. When we're about to act, can this wisdom, can this understanding come forth? It helps awaken us from that cycle of our habituated actions. So the first of the unwholesome actions of body, again, very obvious, not killing, not physically harming other beings or ourselves. So we take this on many levels. It's people not killing people. Just think how different the world would be if people just followed just that. And it seems, you know, sometimes I think it's like the Buddha's teaching kindergarten. Don't kill. (laughs) Uh, Somehow we need to, so obvious, and yet we look around the world, people are not understanding this. Not killing animals for sport or pleasure. You know, where we really begin to respect life. Not killing beings because we don't like the way they look. You know, those little insects and the creepy crawlies. And had a very strong experience of this in my days in India. In the summer months, it would get very hot in Bodh Gaya, which is on the plains. It would go up to like 120 degrees. And so anybody who could left for the mountains. So I'd gone up with friends and just rented this basic cabin up in the mountains in a hill station called Dalhousie. It had you know spectacular views of the high peaks. But it was a pretty primitive cabin. There was no running water inside, no plumbing and lots of big, hairy spiders, <laughs> you know, which would just hang out on the ceiling you know, of my bedroom. And, and when I first went into this cottage, and very disconcerting. But there was really nothing to do. I wasn't going to kill them. And they were a little too big to move outside. <laughs> I mean, they were... and so we just learned to coexist you know the spiders had their place on the ceiling and I had my place down below and it was amazing after not a long time it was totally fine just coexisting and respecting respecting each other's life and yet that's so different than our culture here. You know, in our culture, something a little unpleasant, we don't like in the house, take out the can of raid, psh, 
know, kill it. And nobody thinks anything of it. So when we take a look at this first unwholesome action, we really begin to bring it down to more refined levels. Can we actually connect? Not Not just conceptually, but experientially with the commonality of life, the commonality of the life process. You know, and it engenders a very different feeling in us than when we unthinkingly just, oh, don't like it, kill it. Sometimes we're faced with difficult situations where the solution is not simple. You know, what does one do in trying to eradicate malaria and spraying for the malaria mosquitoes? Or or other diseases, you know, that are insect-borne, or carpenter ants are eating up your house. What do you do? You know, do we just say, "Oh, be happy, be happy"? <laughs> so it's not, sometimes we're really faced with choices that are not easy. They're real ethical dilemmas, and we really just try to weigh, you know, in some wise way, the best course of action. What I feel is important is even in those cases where for whatever reason it feels it's necessary to take the life of some being, if that's the conclusion that we come to after some consideration, some wise reflection, can we do it from a place of compassion rather than a place of aversion, or rather than a place of ill will or hatred? understanding what we're doing, you know, and really having compassion uh, for the suffering. So all of these things really require a great deal of sensitivity, a great deal of consciousness being brought to them. That's the first of the unwholesome actions, killing. Buddha said, refrain from it causes suffering to ourselves, suffering to others. The second of the unwholesome actions is stealing. The Buddha said, don't steal. Don't take what is not given. Don't take what is not offered. But we can really expand this and see how this plays out in so many arenas of life. And not being dishonest in work situations. Last year, I saw a documentary about the whole Enron scandal. You know, and the, the documentary was called Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. And it was unbelievable, you know, that these very smart guys were so driven by greed that they destroyed the lives of thousands and thousands of people. And it was just amazing to see the headspace that they were in leading to the actions that they did. But we may not be quite on the level of Enron, but just in our own lives, in our own work situations, 
are there areas in our lives that are a little problematic in terms of just being straightforward and honest? You know, we really want to look at this. Are we taking more than we need? You know, and this can be extended just to exploiting resources. And we see that both culturally and we can see it individually. It can come down even to smaller, smaller actions, very personal actions, when we expand this notion of what stealing means. You know, it doesn't have to be blatant stealing. It can just be be taking what's not necessary rather than giving. It's just that energy of taking rather than offering. I had the experience being on retreat here at IMS. I was on retreat, going into the lunch line, and this particular day they had one of my favorite IMS dishes, sesame spinach. And there was a little sign in front, moderation please. So I'm going through the line and seeing, <laughs> desire, and the thought that was in my mind, the f- kind of the first immediate thought was, how much can I take and still be moderate? <laughs> so I kind of pushed the limit a bit. You know? And then about 30 seconds or a minute later, I was overcome with guilt. You know, did I take too much? The people behind me won't have enough. The whole lunch period, I was just you know, eating lunch, always looking back to see. <laughs> and it was just a small thing, but when we're watching our minds, we see that our sensitivity to wholesome and unwholesome actions can get very refined. You know, and that's the beauty of awareness, the beauty of our practice. So when the Buddha says, you know, refrain from stealing as an unwholesome action, don't think of it just as, you know, the obvious and blatant stealing, which we probably don't do, but see how it might apply, how that principle might apply just in our more ordinary interactions. So refraining from killing, refraining from stealing. The third of the unwholesome actions that the Buddha said causes suffering to ourselves, causes suffering to others, is sexual misconduct. Now this means different things at different levels. Sexual misconduct for monks or nuns or people on retreat means being celibate, refraining from sexual activity. But for lay people in the world, it's not what it means. It really means avoiding sexual activity that causes harm. You know, it's traditionally talked about in terms of adultery or deception or encouraging other people to break vows of commitment. It could mean inappropriate relations you know, between doctors and patients, or teachers and students, or therapists and clients. There are many arenas where sexual activity is inappropriate. It's important to really look at and investigate 
this energy within us because it is very powerful. It's often when we feel most alive, you know, when sexual passion, sexual energy is strong in us, it's a tremendously energizing, powerful force. Larry Rosenberg, who is one of the founding teachers at the Cambridge Meditation Center, who's now around 75, but at a teacher meeting uh, a little while ago, and this issue was coming up, and he just made the comment, is there anybody who in their life has not made a fool of themselves over sex? You know, and kind of everybody smiled in acknowledgement of the truth of that. It's powerful. It's a powerful energy. And the Buddha is saying, we need to pay attention. We need to become conscious of this. I don't know what I mentioned here, the Burmese English translation about this. Anyway, this is, this is one of my favorite Burmese-English translation moments. Saida Upandita was speaking about this and going on and on, maybe speaking for about 10 minutes in Burmese. And then the translator said four words in English. Yeah. And these four words really stuck in my mind. Lust cracks the brain. <laughs> It does. It does. When it's strong, it's so easy for it to be overpowering. And we do all kinds of things. So the Buddha is saying, recognizing this is a powerful energy, learn about it. Really investigate the nature of desire. You know, and see what's skillful, see what's unskillful. And being on retreat in a surprising way is an opportunity to learn a lot about desire, both sexual desire and other kinds of desires, precisely because we're not acting on them. And in that space, it gives us a chance. It gives us a space of clarity to really investigate, to see, okay, what is the nature of it? How is it working in my mind, in my body? On retreat, as desires arise, and they will arise, you know, for different people at different times, and sometimes it arises quite strongly. When it arises, it's a chance to see it's impermanent, changing nature. The desire arises, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, it can be there for quite a while. And then it goes. And we learn that we don't have to suppress it and we don't need to express it. So we learn how to create the space to feel it and still have an understanding, still have the wisdom to see when it's appropriate to act on it, when is it not, 
we come to a real understanding. So when sexual desire arises in the mind, and by extension any other kind of desire, how is our mind relating to it? That's the question. You know, do we indulge the fantasies because they're pleasant? Very easy to spend a nice hour kind of just indulging you know, in pleasant fantasy. Or for some people it arises and there's a fear. You know, oh, I, don't, I don't want to deal with this. You know, we, we feel ourselves pulling back you know, with a certain fear of feeling it. Through our practice, through the cultivation of awareness, we learn the middle way. We're allowing, we're not suppressing it, we're not expressing it, we're just letting it arise, seeing its impermanent nature, letting it pass away. In the book Anna Karenina by Tolstoy, You know, Anna Karenina is, for those of you who haven't read it recently, she's this beautiful married woman, very beautiful in all ways and passionate, and is having a love affair with this very handsome uh, guardsman, Count Vronsky. You know, and eventually they they run off together, and... At a certain point, the romance begins, especially on his part, begins to pall. Anyway, this is Vronsky's experience of the nature of desire. Really, by extension, Tolstoy's. Okay, Vronsky, meanwhile in spite of the complete realization of what he had so long desired, was not perfectly happy. He soon felt that the realization of his desires gave him no more than a grain of sand out of the mountain of happiness he had expected. It showed him the mistake men make in picturing to themselves happiness as the realization of their desires. I read that. The Buddha could have said that. We make a fundamental mistake. We think that a genuine lasting happiness is going to come through the fulfillment of our desires. And it never does. So this is not something we want to kind of accept on some philosophical basis. It's really to look in our own experience, and that's the beauty of the retreat. Desires are going to arise of all kinds. Really look and investigate, see what it's about, see what that energy is about, see how they arise, how they pass away. It's a chance to learn about this very powerful force. So these are the three unwholesome actions of the body killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. The Buddha says, refrain from these. They are the cause of suffering. There are four unwholesome actions of speech. 
Now this in itself is pretty remarkable. And it's highlighting how powerful a force speech is in our lives. So much suffering comes from our lack of attention to the way we speak. Now the Buddha singled out right speech as one aspect of the noble eightfold path to liberation. I mean, he's saying right speech, this is important. And yet how often in our practice and our lives do we relegate it to some secondary field of endeavor? You know, the real practice of liberation is sitting, you know, or walking, or being in silent retreat. Well, of course, this is obviously an important piece of it all, but the Buddha is saying speech is a very powerful force. It can contribute in a major way either to our suffering or our happiness, so pay attention. And again, he went further. He laid it all out for us. The beauty of the Buddha's teachings they're just very clear. You know, he, he just says so straightforwardly what we need to pay attention to. Now we know from our own experience how speech so often conditions the nature of our relationships. It conditions our own minds. The way we speak reinforces patterns in our minds. It conditions karmic consequences for the future. So what are the four unwholesome kinds of speech? Again, the first is very obvious. It's lying. The Buddha says, don't lie. Don't kill. Don't steal. Take care with sexuality. Don't lie. Such obvious things, but we do need to hear them and reflect on them. There are many kinds of false speech, many levels of false speech. Now, there might be slight exaggerations. We exaggerate something. Or humorous untruths, you know, where we say something that's untrue just as a way of humor. To falsehoods whose motivation might be self-protection in some way. We say what's untrue out of a misguided idea that we're protecting something in ourselves or protecting something in others. And sometimes there are very deliberate lies with malicious intent where the intent is to cause harm. The intent is to cause divisiveness. So in any of these situations, from just the small little exaggerations, kind of the little lies to the really big ones, a very interesting question for us to reflect on is, why do we lie? Why would we say that which is untrue? becomes very interesting to explore the motivations behind false speech. You know, is it greed for something? 
or desire for some kind of self-aggrandizement or fear of rejection or jealousy. There could be so many different motivations where we shade the truth in one way or another. said that in the life of the bodhisattva, from the time that the previous Buddha, Dipankara, had prophesied that our Buddha would one day become fully awakened, you know, in all those many lifetimes, he was called the bodhisattva, so countless lifetimes perfecting the qualities, it said that he committed many kinds of misdeeds. It's not that he was perfectly pure right from the beginning. He struggled with a lot of the same forces that we do. But it said even though he committed many misdeeds and suffered the karmic consequences of them, the one thing he didn't do from the time of that prediction was he never said that which was untrue. You know, it's like planting the flag of truthful speech. And I just find that very inspiring. And it's also a little surprising to me how something that seems so obviously good and in one way so obviously simple should also be so difficult. I don't think of myself really as being one of the grand liars of these times. (laughs) But when I watch my speech, it's just striking to me. Kind of the little ways untruths can come out. So it's very challenging and powerful just to make truth a standard. One of my favorite stories of this, this is, this story has become part of IMS lore. And it's just about the tendency we have to cover for ourselves. This is many years ago, you know, and there was a yogi on a a three-month retreat who had walked into, you know, the big walk-in refrigerator and freezer behind the kitchen and it was in the evening, and his hand was kind of in the box of almonds or whatever it was that was in there. And a staff person happened to walk in. And the staff person was very nice. You know, saw the yogi and said, can I help you? And, and I can just picture this scene. I can totally picture it. Hands in the box of, can I help you? Oh, I'm just looking for the maintenance man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> I mean, I think we can all relate to that. <laughs> you know, like that first that impulse to self-protection. So it's just to watch, you know, and and of course the great help to us if we can watch without judgment. You know, there are going to be lots of situations, either very obvious ones or some very subtle ones. But can we pay attention so we, so we do refine our commitment to speaking the truth? 
it takes practice and it also takes a certain quality of courage you know to be that honest with ourselves and that's that's a gift of the practice so falsehood or lying is the first of the unwholesome aspects of speech the second unwholesome kind of speech the buddha pointed to uh, is harsh speech or angry aggressive speech it's impactful now words have a great power to harm and we see this happen in so many situations in our lives when words that are used actually cause harm to others we need to really be conscious of the energy of our speech and the motivation behind it you know how do we feel when we have angry aggressive words coming towards us what does it feel like to be on the receiving end of that very often in some way we feel hurt or then we get defensive you know to put up some kind of protective barrier it's not a very conducive field for open communication you know it doesn't serve purpose of actually connecting with another being now the point here is that it's not to stuff or suppress our feelings you know if the if we're feeling angry or upset or whatever it is that's going on in us and something needs to be communicated it's not that we just you know suppress it all and pretend oh, I'm not angry and then it come out in very passive aggressive ways it's to acknowledge the feeling in ourselves but have enough space enough awareness enough mindfulness so that we can then communicate that in an effective way rather than simply venting it we need to be able to modulate the quality of our speech one very helpful guideline that i found to be very powerful in my life in the practice of this is to keep in mind whether what i say is creating harmony or creating divisiveness you know, and letting that be the measure and this plays out a lot in the third kind of unwholesome speech this falsehood or lying this harsh language the third kind of unwholesome speech the buddha talked about is gossip or backbiting now these are words that cause disharmony between people now an interesting question because gossip is so common you know it's not this is not a rare thing this is a major part of how we speak we often speak about other people and it's not it's not always malicious but sometimes it may not be the most wholesome the question that i find very interesting you know is 
I see the impulse in my mind to speak about others, is what's the delight in it? Why do we take delight in it? What's happening? What's, what's the motivation in our hearts? You know, does it reaffirm some sense of self? Like, does somehow we feel better about ourselves when we're speaking about a third person? Is there some ego gratification? So it's just to look. I had one very striking uh, situation. Somebody had come up to do an interview with me. Uh, He was writing a book about different spiritual teachers and scenes in America. He was a very skillful interviewer. Came up, we were sitting in my house, and we had his tape recorder going. And we were just talking about different things. And then he started asking me what I thought about many of my colleagues. And I could just feel that impulse to give my two cents about (laughs) everyone. No one here. (laughs) And it was so interesting. And fortunately, I was mindful enough to see the impulse, to see the it would have been so much fun. <laughs> Just, to, oh yeah, that person, blah, 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 you know, and that person. But I saw it, unfortunately. You know, and I could just see it in my mind. And I said, no, this is not skillful. I don't want to go here. And then when I saw the book come out, you know, and everything that we had been talked about was right there in the book, I was so grateful for the restraint, because I would have been very, very embarrassed and ashamed, you know, if that had actually come into print. So we want to take care, you know, and we want to see what that impulse is about to speak about others. And again, to be very clear even when we do speak about other people, as, as we often do, what is the motivation? Is it to cause division between others, to cause separation, or not? Is it in the service of friendship? Is it in the service of harmony? We need to pay attention, because these patterns happen very automatically. So the last of the unwholesome patterns of speech, it's not speaking falsely or lying, not harsh speech, not gossip or backbiting, the last one is perhaps the most difficult of all. And that is, the Buddha said, to refrain from useless talk. There's a great word in Pali, the translation of this, of useless talk, it's, it's anamadapiyak. Is that the word, you know, where the word sounds like what it is? The word in Pali is sampapalapa. (laughs) And sampapalapa is just what it sounds like. (laughs) It's just useless talk. You know, our words become worthless. We just, and it's, again, it's, it's, Really fascinating to watch. Here, of course, there's not much opportunity for it. <laughs> but when you're back in the world, you know, just hanging out with friends and 
you know, talking, so often I'll see something come up in my mind to say that is completely useless. It doesn't serve anything at all. It's just useless. It's some papalapa. And when I can see it, before it comes out the mouth, and I can kind of see it around, and then, I don't need to say that. This is not necessary. It always feels so good. It feels, uh, you know, I kind of relax back into a place of greater ease. And then when I'm not mindful enough, <laughs> you know, out it comes. <laughs> it's a great practice. Speech is a great practice. A great question to ask with respect to speech is it necessary? Is it necessary to say this or not? And as we practice in this way, our hearts and our minds actually become much more peaceful. You know, we're, we're just not giving voice to all this useless chatter. And as I'm sure you've noticed being on retreat, there's plenty of useless chatter that's going on in the mind. Our speech conditions that. And as we refrain from this kind of speech, our minds and our hearts get more peaceful. So it's a powerful practice. One thing I want to highlight here, the Buddha listed ten unwholesome actions. He's saying these actions cause suffering. Four of the ten have to do with speech. I think it's worthy of our attention. This is not just some little side piece of the path. This is a big piece of what causes suffering in our lives and how we can refrain from it. Okay. The last of the unwholesome actions are the three actions of mind. And the first of these is covetousness. Just the mind that's coveting, that's wanting. Wanting what others may have. And it's that feeling of just never having enough. You know, and covetousness, it's like that hungry ghost mentality. It's just always wanting what others others may have. It's just the opposite of that quality of mudita. sympathetic or empathetic joy that takes delight in the happiness of others. It's not coveting it. It's actually enjoying their happiness, finding joy and delight in it. Covetousness always leaves us unfulfilled. You know, and it can lead to so many other unwholesome states of jealousy, of envy, and then of actions based on that. So we want to really look in our minds, see when this is arising, and recognize it, being mindful of it, and then letting it go, choosing not to act on it.
there's one little story. It's it's just one of my favorites, so I must read it. It's about covetousness and how that can lead to other unwholesome mind states. And there's something, uh, a little story about the writer Anne Lamont. Uh, and she was describing how difficult it is to deal with the triumphs of other writers, particularly if one of them happens to be a friend. So this is her quote. It can wreak just the tiniest bit of havoc with your self-esteem to find that you are hoping for small, bad things to happen to this friend, she says, for, say, her head to blow up. You know, when somebody else gets something that we want or that we are desiring of. So it's not to judge ourselves. It's, it's really to understand the Buddha is pointing these out because they're in common to all of us. You know, these things arise at different times in most of us. So it's not about self-judgment. It's about the interest in seeing, the interest in really becoming aware and seeing that we can make choices. Okay, the ninth of the unwholesome actions, and this is the second, the second unwholesome action of mind, is ill will. And we've talked a lot about this. Ill will means impatience, means irritation, anger, annoyance, fear, all kinds of aversion. And it arises when we don't get what we want. We want something, we don't get it. So aversion arises. Or we do get what we don't want, like pain or discomfort or unpleasant mind states. We get something, something arises, and we don't want it. And that causes aversion. Could be difficult situations. You know, aversion arises in difficult situations, circumstances in the world or with other people. And so often there is a tendency to blame others for how we feel. You know, we feel aversion and it's somebody else's fault. Years ago I was in a relationship with a woman who I'm still very good friends with. One of the the highlights of our relationship was we were having a little disagreement, uh, bordering on an argument. And at one point she turns to me and she says, stop making me feel aversion. (laughs) And I must say, I just started to laugh, which probably didn't help. (laughs) But it was such a classic, a classic expression of something we all feel. Stop making me feel this way. Well, nobody makes us feel anyway. How we feel is completely up to us, even in very difficult circumstances. How we feel about it is up to us. And this is a tremendously liberating insight. Just as an example of this, and this goes ties into the speech, the Buddha talked also about listening, how to listen. 
This is what he said. Because there are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Okay, people may speak to us in five different ways. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or connected with harm, spoken with a mind of loving-kindness or with a mind of inner hate. Here in bhikkhus you should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving-kindness. That's a pretty high bar. Somebody speaking to us with a mind filled of hate, with an intention to harm, untimely, untruthfully. You should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare. There's a tremendous lesson here that how we feel, how we respond, how we relate is up to us. It's not dependent on the external condition. And that's the great power of the practice. That's what we're learning. Okay, so there's covetousness, there's ill will, these are the unwholesome actions of mind. The last of them, the last unwholesome action of mind, is called wrong view. And wrong view has different aspects. One aspect of wrong view is not understanding, not considering the law of karma, understanding that our actions have consequences. Wrong view is the belief that there is no result from skillful or unskillful actions. So the Buddha is saying something very direct here about how we need to understand the world. He's saying it is wrong view, it is misperception if we think there is no result from skillful or unskillful actions. So when this wrong view is present, when we, when we don't understand action and its result, it's like trying to navigate through the world, to navigate through our lives without understanding what brings happiness and what causes suffering. So we go th- down so many wrong streets, wrong directions, so many missteps because we don't understand, we have wrong view. When wrong view is present in the mind, we don't stop to consider the results of our actions. We don't consider where the actions are leading and whether or not we want to go there. So wrong view is a, is a very powerful and potentially dangerous force in the mind. It obscures clear seeing and it's the cause of a lot of suffering. So the other aspect of wrong view, one is not seeing or understanding that skillful and unskillful actions bear fruit. The other crucial aspect of wrong view, and one that is at the root cause of so much suffering, is the deeply conditioned 
view or concept of self. And we have and will continue to talk a lot about this. The idea, the belief, the view that there is someone behind experience to whom it's all happening. Now we create this mental construct of a self, an I. We call it, name it Joseph, or Myoshin, or Annie, or whoever, or each one of us. And then we reinforce this view of self every time we identify with a rising experience. We identify with a thought, we identify with an emotion, my thought, my feeling, I'm sad, I'm happy, my pain. Well, the I and mine is extra. We're adding that to the bare fact of the experience. In our practice, we begin to get pretty clear glimpses, I think, and by now probably you've all had some taste of this, Yeah, the sensations are just coming and going. The thoughts are just coming and going. The emotions are just coming and going. We begin to get a sense, even just a little bit, of their selfless nature. It's just empty phenomena rolling on. But the last hideout of self, and the one that's quite difficult to see, is the identification we have with the knowing, with the awareness. We can see all the changing objects coming and going and get some sense of them being not-self. But through that identification with awareness, we create the sense of a witness or an observer. Well, that's who I am. So that's kind of the last holdout of this view of self. Now, if you remember from talk last week, talked about the difference between consciousness, awareness, and wisdom. You know, in that context, awareness and mindfulness we use simultaneously, synonymously. So this goes to the question that came up in the morning. In this context, awareness or mindfulness and consciousness, all of them are conditioned states arising and passing away, not I, not self. And the Buddha is very clear in his description of how consciousness is dependently arising. It arises dependent on conditions. And we will talk more about that. So in this context, awareness slash mindfulness, is a conditioned state of mind, just like everything else, just like concentration or wisdom or generosity or love or concentration or fear or anger. They're all conditioned states. There are some schools of Buddhism, though, and some schools even within Theravada that speak of an unconditioned awareness, which is something apart from consciousness and the the aggregates. 
Now this question, is awareness conditioned or unconditioned, has been hotly debated for thousands of years. So I would suggest that you not spend too much time on this question. (laughs) Rather than draw conclusions and rather than spin out in your thoughts, is it conditioned? Is it unconditioned? What did the Buddha mean? As a way of not getting caught in all that and of staying aligned with fundamental right view, the view of selflessness, if we simply practice not clinging to anything, whatever arises, not to cling, not to cling to the different objects, not to cling to knowing, not to cling to awareness, the mind of not clinging. There's a Tibetan teaching that says, if you do not cling, whatever arises is naturally freed. And that's, that's just a beautiful image. If we don't cling, whatever arises is naturally freed. We can stay right in that experience of freedom in the moment. And we don't need to get caught up in the philosophic uh, debates. One point in my practice in Bodh Gaya, I had been there for a while and I just had dropped into this wonderful place. It was like a non-dual awareness and I was just was doing walking meditation and just became so effortless and free. There was no separation of awareness and body. And I started kind of dancing around the roof of the Burmese Vihara where I was staying and couldn't wait to tell my teacher. So I you know, go running to Manindraji and I just telling him how free I was. And all he said to me was, don't recondition your mind. It was a great teaching. Don't recondition your mind with another conclusion. Just be in the experience and let the Dharma unfold. So I just pass that on to you in terms of drawing conclusions. Stay in the openness. Stay in the not knowing. So these are the ten unwholesome actions. And what we should refrain from of killing, of stealing, of sexual misconduct, of lying, of harsh speech, of gossip, of useless speech, of covetousness, of ill will, of wrong view. It was really out of great compassion that the Buddha pointed these out to us. It's like putting a sign on a beach, you know, that says, danger, strong undertow. It's like a warning sign that tells us to be careful. That's what the Buddha is doing here. He's saying, he's putting up the sign, be careful. These are the actions that lead to suffering. So we need to internalize it, to investigate. It's not simply a question of believing it. Really look at all of these things. You know, internalize it and reflect on it in an appropriate way. 
In this clear and very straightforward teaching, the Buddha helps us understand freedom with a very mature and long-ranging vision. Freedom is not about doing what we want when we want. That's really addiction. Freedom is in that place of wisdom where we can make choices, where we can choose wisely, understanding what is the cause of suffering and what is not. I'd just like to close with one, this was a couple of verses also in the Dhammapada, about happiness. The Buddha is telling us, okay, what causes happiness for us? He said, happiness is having friends when need arises. Happiness is contentment with whatever there is. Happiness is merit at the end of one's life. Happiness is the abandoning of all suffering. In the world, respect for one's mother is happiness, as is respect for one's father. In the world, respect for renunciance is happiness. Happiness is virtue lasting through old age. Happiness is steadfast faith. Happiness is the attainment of wisdom. Not doing the unskillful is happiness. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. There's one Tibetan aspiration that says, may you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May you have happiness and the causes of happiness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.